and welcome to How I Survived This, the totally badass and dramatic podcast, where we dive into the good, the not so good, and the totally badass journeys of women in the arts. I'm your host, Heather Corrigan. We're here today to learn about each of my guests' unique journeys, from their wins to their darkest hours and all of the dramatic moments in between. So grab a drink, snacks, or whatever, and get comfy, because today we have as my guest, Lucy Pohl. Born in Germany, but raised in New York City, which, let's face it, is pretty badass in itself. She has cultivated a career in the arts spanning from live stand-up comedy, one-woman shows, TV, film, and voiceover and does it all in two languages. She is the voice actress for the hero Mercy in the video game Overwatch, was featured in Red Dwarf episode Twentica as Harmony de Gautier, and was in perhaps one of my favorite movies, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Lucy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Always sounds so much better when other people read your credits than when you (laughs) reflect back on them. Yes. (laughs) Well, they're pretty impressive. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Actually, I am not very familiar with the video game world. So I clicked on some of the Overwatch stuff and your character, as are you, but your character is gorgeous. on this Overwatch. And also, does she speak in German and in English? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So she is an angel and a healer, and I always say, and she has giant knockers, (laughs) which doesn't (laughs) hurt. No, she's pretty, she's actually, you know, speaking of badass, she's pretty badass in the sense that what Overwatch did was they were kind of one of the first games to really make you know, diversity, a huge thing in the characters and also sort of like dimensions, (laughs) especially for the female characters. So she's a perfect example of that. She's like this really kind of tropey, sexy uh, video game character physically. But then she's very educated. She's a scientist. She's very tough. She's a medical doctor. Right. She's compassionate, but strong. She has dimension. She's kind of a very real sort of woman um, that we don't get to see that much of or or haven't been seeing that much of in entertainment and especially not in video games. You know? Right. I was going to say, I mean, that might that was probably something really new in the video game world. And I'm not familiar. That's kind of maybe that's hopeful for the direction that these video game characters can go. I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, that was uh, that really was why the game was as successful as it became. I think the diversity and the um, the realness that the writers injected into the characters, uh, uh, even though they're fantasy characters. But the writers uh, really brought in a lot from people that they knew from their own lives. And I think you can uh, feel that you can't fake that. And and I think people connect and respond to that. And when I go to Comic Cons and I do panels, a lot of young girls especially will ask, you know, what's it like being a female in the industry or what advice do you have? And I always say, Mercy is a perfect example of this. My advice is you don't have to be a man. (laughs) You don't have to start trying to make yourself into a man to succeed in this industry. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, yeah, there's a sensitivity to her. Yeah, Uh, exactly. Exactly. So do you think that Mercy was a good, strong character for female gamers, as well as, you know, women looking to get into the industry, but for female gamers to sort of have somebody to identify with? 
I do. I, you know, male and female gamers responded to her. She is, you know, she's she is a very feminine character, but she is very strong. She's very smart. She's sassy. She has a lot of dimension to her, like like real women do. Yeah. You know, she's not just one thing. I think that I do think that she's a great character for female gamers. And, you know, female gamers have it tough. There's a lot of toxicity and a lot of problems in, in the gaming world for females as there are everywhere. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I do think that she was a great character for for female gamers. And a lot of, you know, I get some people that come to me at Comic-Cons and say, like, I don't even play the game. I just respond to the backstory, the character design, stuff like that. And am inspired by this um, contrast in the character of compassion, empathy, like the softness and also the strength that she embodies. Yeah. Um, So I know I jumped right in with um, Mercy and Overwatch, but I just want to go all the way back and ask you the plain and simple, and I say simple and I laugh because it's hardly simple. How did you decide, and I don't know if we ever really truly decide, to get into acting as a career? Yeah, I grew up in a theater family. My dad's an actor and a writer, and um, my mom was a theater director for a while, and she's a singer. And then my aunt is a a well-known actress in Germany. My cousin is a well-known actress in Germany. My uncle is an actor in Germany. (laughs) That's incredible. I basically grew up in the theater, spending time in the theater, and and it was our world and the only world that I really knew. I was always fascinated with other people's lives and always had friends whose parents had like, in quotations, normal jobs and uh-huh. always thought that was really cool. But I never imagined that I would do anything else. It was like I just couldn't see. I I can't remember a time. I think I, I, I thought about being becoming a marine biologist for like, 20 minutes when I picked up a shark book and got very excited about yes. sharks. <laughs> but other than that, I never um, considered doing anything else. It was totally the natural thing. My sister and I would perform little skits for my parents when I was like six or seven years old or even younger. But I did have a moment where when I went to acting school and started auditioning for stuff and sort of kind of started coming up against resistance and and that I did have a time where I kind of had to figure out what it means to me aside from having grown up in it and what I kind of was looking for or, you know, why I was trying to to be in this world. So I don't remember ever having a moment where I decided that I would do this. I never imagined anything else for myself and always felt the most at home in a theater or around, you know, other performers. And yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I can totally relate. When you were growing up, did both of your parents, like, did you spend nights in the theater? Like, were they both in rehearsals and on set? And that was sort of just your community as well, aside from the the initial family unit, all of their friends, I'm sure, were actors and directors and writers and all of that as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they always took us uh, along with them. They didn't leave us at home with babysitters very much. We'd go with them, you know, to the rehearsals or even when they'd go out. Right. Uh, Was this in Germany or 
So I was eight when we moved to New York. And then after high school here in New York, I actually decided to go and study in Germany because it's free. Uh, if you're a, a German citizen, school is free, which definitely beats being in debt for the rest of your life. And I also thought I'll go see how I feel about living in Germany because I was young when we moved here. And and it was kind of, you know, we'd always go in the summers and it was this like cool, exotic thing to go to Germany and have this cross-cultural life, you know. Um, and so I kind of thought, all right, I'll, I'll give it a go and see how I like it there. And I was very, very, very much all about theater back then. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I, I also thought that's where the theater tradition is older and sort of, you know, has deeper roots. And theater is a huge thing in Germany. You know, every town has at least one theater and they're government subsidized, which means that, you know, they have money and the actors are paid as part of an ensemble. You know, they're on like salary. And so it has a dip. It's a different life to be in that profession there. Right. Just with the whole idea of each town or city in Germany having their own theater and actors getting paid. I just want to elaborate to our listeners for a moment in most, I would say. Uh, European countries, or let's let's just say Germany, now that I'm learning this, and England in London, they have a national theater. They have a place where if an actor decides to go and study acting in university, then when they graduate, you always have this sort of home base, this community to go back to. And I think one of the things as theater actors in, in the United States, we don't have a national theater. We don't have that continual home to go back to. So is that something that when you went back as an 18-year-old to university, did you get that opportunity to sort of sink into that world? Because you went for four years. Is it a four-year university? Uh, well, uh, no, I didn't. It is. Uh, but I actually left um, oh. <laughs> after two years. So in, in England, it's actually a little more similar to how it works here. They don't have... They don't put actors on salary there the way they do in Germany. Um, But I left early because I had a big culture shock. I had a really bad time at acting school in Germany. I was I felt like such an outsider in a Mm. way that I had never felt before, even moving to New York, not speaking English as a kid. But I took for granted what it means to grow up in a place like New York that's so diverse. I also went to an international school here where everybody was from at least five places or, you know, not from here. And then also growing up in this unconventional family, it was it was a huge culture and like environment shock for me because my parents are sort of well known in Germany or my family is. That was something that was a problem. The the professors, the teachers kind of, you know, a lot of them. I remember one of the first things that we had to do was go individually and talk to one of the main acting professors about why we wanted to be here. And I walked in and he was like, so do you just want to be an actor because your parents and your family are in the business? And you could feel that they had sort of like a chip on their shoulder about that. I was the only one that that came from somewhere outside of Germany. Uh-huh. And I was from New York. Yeah, right. It's like a who do you think you are kind right. of thing. And so there was a lot of that. And then having grown up in the world and everybody in my class you know, that being their first sort of um, connection to the theater or acting world, I knew some stuff that they didn't know. Yeah. 
And I also have never been a fan of uh, authority, which is why I wanted to go to acting school. I thought that I, I had this very naive vision that it would be a group of people who are like interested in theater and art and who wanted to create something and had like a lot of passion. And what I was faced with was an institution. It was, you know, bureaucracy, bureaucracy and yeah. institution. And people were raising their hands to ask if they could go to the bathroom. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, this yeah. is not what I didn't want to be in school anymore. And the teachers also were very, you know, bureaucratic and and it was sort of like a painful experience for me. And then also just Germany was a painful experience for me because I I didn't feel German at all. My mom's side of the family is Jewish. And I sort of just um, felt, yeah, like very unhappy and, and very, very, very much like an outsider. And so I quit acting school after two years. And then I got cast as uh, one of the leads in a TV show by this German film director who was making his first TV show. And it was this big deal and everybody was talking about it and everybody wanted to be in it. And I got cast as one of the series regulars in this show. And that was sort of my first big thing that I did as an actor. And I was the like hot, cute girlfriend of one of the male leads in the show. And I was a hairdresser and they put me in super tight little skimpy outfits. And I always <laughs> had a cigarette in my mouth and yep. big hair. And and then um, that's sort of what I got cast as all the time in Germany. And I was like, so the opposite of that. And then I, I started becoming very unhappy, I have to say, although I was doing well, and I was making money and getting good jobs. And I felt sort of lost um, mm -hmm. in that whole thing. And, uh, and, and, and I was always cast as like this, like exotic hot girl, and sort of like also the mean, little bit mean girl, I guess, because I have dark hair. That's, you know, as far as the imagination goes. <laughs> yes, it's, it's synonymous. Yes, dark yeah. hair equals mean. Right. So what did you do to sort of work through this part of your life? I didn't really work through it for f un until much later. I always thought that I needed to change myself. Like I was the problem. And, you know, I had uh, during that time, for example, on that TV show, which was this big deal. And the director was this big director. And he was like super nice to me. And he would like call me in my trailer from set and be like, hey, I'm so sorry. It's taking longer. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, no problem. What? And then he, you know, asked me out to dinner. And then there was, uh, you know, a lot of moments where I was like, oh, I don't feel comfortable hmm. with this. This is like, this is weird. Like he's telling me about, you know, having sex with his wife on the like conference room table of this hotel room. And then he's like hitting on me basically. And, 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 and so those were like, me too moments. Right. right, right. Um, and I was like 21. And for me, 
what I look back on, what I think is the most painful uh, part of those experiences is that I always thought like I was doing something wrong. Like uh-huh. the the fact that I wasn't comfortable was because I was too closed minded or like too uptight or I needed to just like relax and I needed to not, you know, take this the wrong way. And that's what was you know, for me, when this whole Me Too thing started, I was like, okay, if this means that young women listening to this and reading this, these stories can take away that if they feel uncomfortable, it's not them, then that's already like a huge part, you know, because I think that for me was the most painful thing during that time, which also made me feel like uh, so lost and so confused a lot of times because I kind of was like, I want to be in this world. I want this, but I don't want this. I don't, Mm. you know, want. I remember I did an audition for a commercial back then and I had to be in my underwear and I like cried for like two hours afterwards. I was like, I don't want to do that. But instead of being like, yeah, I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to say I'm not doing that. I was like, oh, there's something wrong with me. Like, I don't want this enough or like I'm, you know, or this is not for me. Um, There's so many stories, obviously, as most women have so many stories, not only in this industry and all industries, unfortunately. But that was a big part of like also why the typecasting really bothered me because I wasn't like I was always someone who was like in relationships like I never slept around like not to say that women who do sleep around and stuff want to be treated that way obviously not but I was like kind of a little bit prude in a way yeah (laughs) not prude but just kind of like that I that wasn't like my vibe at all but I guess I didn't give that off so I remember uh, this one this other director who was like this big like TV movie director wanted to cast me in this like American pie sort of German version of American pie. And then there's a scene where I'm in the kitchen or I walk into the kitchen and my brother's like masturbating into a cake like, you know, like the pie one. Right. right. And and I walk and he turns around and like, sorry to do this to your listeners, but like comes in my face. <gasps> and I was like, ew, I don't want to do that. Ew, I'm ne- I'm not, I'm definitely not doing that. So I met with the director and it was like this big TV movie, you know, on the like biggest network that, you know, always got the, the highest ratings and stuff because TV is a, is a way bigger thing in Germany than, than the cinema, like the, the viewership wise. And I was like, you know, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. And then I just didn't get cast in that. I didn't get the part and I didn't get any other part. And then like I never got a call from that um, director again. And it kind of like hurt me. Yeah. I was only going out for those parts. And and I I sort of talked to my agent there about it. She was like, yeah, but, you know, that's the thing. Like if, you know, you're exotic and you have these big eyes and dark hair and a deep voice. And it's like that's kind of your. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not exotic. And that's like such a fucked up word to use anyway. I'm a person, you know, I'm not like, but so that was, I felt very misunderstood. And then on top of it, the like whole culture in Germany just wasn't my culture at all. And, you know, people are very, are much colder there and more Mm -hmm. reserved and, and, and more sort of, yeah, it it just. A little bit more, um, like if you didn't, uh, even though you were from there, but if you weren't already part of that community, a little bit um, closed off. 
Well, I think uh, just in general, in everyday life, yes. And then in the entertainment industry, uh, there's always this, like, eye over to America. And there's, you know, Germany doesn't have it. It's a very strong own identity when it comes to the film and TV industry. Like, that's mm -hmm. maybe changing a little bit, but, but you know, it's no coincidence that you probably haven't seen a German film in a while or maybe can name one or two that you've seen in your life. It's not, you know, they they kind of, their downfall for me, um, unfortunately, is that they try to imitate the States a lot and they try oh. to kind of replicate. Um, and, and there's a lot of sort of... Um, also, because of the way the industry works, because everything is govern government subsidized, so even films uh, get a lot of government money. So m most films that are made in Germany are um, are co-productions with a um, with a TV channel that is mm -hmm. subsidized by the government. So that means that the people making decisions when it comes to scripts and castings are basically bureaucrats, are are government appointees to people that yeah. run channels or are in charge of, you know, um, they're called dramaturge, dramaturges, dram, dramaturges. How do you say that in Dramaturgs, exactly. But they're really government appointed people that, um, so yeah, that, you know, the, that's why the industry is, is a little bit strange in Germany and it's hard and it and it wasn't like there was much to kind of strive for in terms of like making it there. Like making it there wasn't that different than what I was already kind of doing, you know, um, in Germany, in Germany. So like mm -hmm. doing these TV movies where like you get come in your face. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But yeah, so. And this is just I, my experience. Okay, calm down. Germans who are listening. I'm sure that I write, other people write, have other experiences. What I kind of want to sort of bring us around to is is the the struggle that all actors have where, you know, you start out on this path of I am going to work the greats and I can be any character I want to. I am a human being. Yes, I am female. I can play anything and everything in the entire canon of theater history. And then all of a sudden you leave this well, in most cases, you leave the the confines of the theater school or the you know the nest, and then you head out into the into the industry, and you're like, "Here I am." And they're mm -hmm. like, "Hmm, you have dark hair and big eyes, and you have a sexy voice. You are this." And uh, I think that everybody who goes out into the world and pursues this has some form of, "Oh, you know, you're the you're this type. You're this type. Oh, you're this weight, so you're this type, or you have." Uh, you know, glasses, you have this type, you know. So what we're sort of always going up against is how do we bring our continual passion and drive and love for our creativity and then also say, okay, well, I also want to work, but I also want to be authentic to myself at the same time. So I, 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 I understand what you're saying. And, and then it does sound like in Germany specifically because of the way that, you know, yes, they have this government-supported theaters and government-supported TV and uh, TV films and all of that. But then the the downside to that is that the 
some of the creativity seems to sort of be lost in translation um, and maybe just wasn't right for you. No, yeah, it really, it definitely wasn't. But my first experience, actually, with what you're talking about, you know, we want to play every character, was when I auditioned for for LaGuardia, the performing um, arts high school here in New York. And I auditioned with, one of my monologues was Trinculo from The Tempest. Um, and he's kind of this, like, fool character and, and is a male character. And I remember the lady saying, yeah, that's fine. And so she gave me the slip and she said, you got to call back, but what are you doing? Why are you, that's your, that's a male role. You're a girl. Bring something else in next time. Bring a female role in next time. And I didn't go back. I was like, fuck those people. They fucking suck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which was also silly because that meant I didn't go to LaGuardia. But, um, but yeah, I, I always was drawn to you know, different characters of different genders. And I had so many experiences of people telling me, you can't do that because you're a girl. And that's one one of the reasons I love voice overwork so much, you know, especially in the video game and animation um, world where you can be anything. You can play a leaf. Did you find that coming back into the U.S., did you do some TV and film? Because we started to touch on voiceover, but before we go into that world... Did you jump into TV film here in the U.S.? It was kind of a rude awakening. You know, all the stuff that I had done in Germany, nothing was like Oscar nominated. So here in the States, people don't give a shit. You know, Mm -hmm. if you've like been a series regular on a TV show in Germany, nobody cares unless they've heard of this show for some. And Netflix was not around back then, people. Correct. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, So that was a huge shock. And uh, then I had to start, yeah, doing just random jobs. I'd always, since I was like a teenager, always had like a a job, you know. What are some of the things that you did to survive? Um, Yeah, I mean, I did uh, uh, the restaurant thing. So I I was a hostess at first, and then I waited tables. I also um, babysat I just like looked for those types of gigs. I did translating on the side. So I would wait tables during the day. I would audition. I would try to like, you know, do whatever I can, take yeah. acting classes. Blah, blah. Then I would wait tables in the evening. And then when I'd come back, I would translate the dialogue books for reality TV shows, like Keeping Up with the Kardashians into German for the dubbing. So the dubbing dialogue oh my gosh. books, which was the gnarliest. I mean, it was a fucking nightmare. Every time I had to time code them too. So every time somebody spoke, I had to stop and put in the time code, which in reality TV is like every two seconds because people are going, oh my God, what? No, uh, cut, cut, cut. Like super fast cuts. People are just like saying, what the hell? Oh my God. Ew, selfie. Wow. What? Uh. Um, so keeping up with the Kardashians, Chicago Licious is one that I did. Oh, Girls of the Playboy Mansion. Oh ben. my God the spinoff show Kendra. <laughs> and that was actually one of my first voice uh, gigs, voice acting gigs was when I was in Berlin. I'd been translating those dialogue books. The guy was like, hey, do you just, can you just come in and do Chloe Kardashian for us? So In German. Yeah, in as German. A, a dubbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I dubbed Chloe Kardashian into German, which is like, oh my God, Lama, was machst du da, Kim? Lass uns doch ein Selfie machen, dein Arsch ist so fett. <laughs> 
And that was gnarly. Like I would come home from waiting tables and then uh, translate until like two or three a.m. and and I waited tables like I did like like almost forty hours a week. Like I, I really busted my ass, and that time was valuable in hindsight because it did really teach me how to work hard. Yep. You know. Yep. And it does really focus you as well if you don't slip into the trap of that becoming your main thing and everything else being a bonus. Oh, that is, you know, so true. Yeah, I I too was in the restaurant world and it was always just one step away because I was good at waiting tables. Yeah. And I was, you know, my tables loved me and I worked all the hours and I was on time and I worked my ass off. Yeah. I, I think what you're getting at is you're always one step away from somebody in management being like, why don't you? And like handing you this job that's steady, that has benefits and money. And then also like sometimes really taking it too seriously and being like, oh, I'm too tired to go to XYZ audition. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, but also the way that your mind starts to think about how to make it work, right? And so my dad was never a person who was like, you shouldn't do things you can't afford. He was always like, you should rent an apartment you can't afford because it'll make you like write a great play or, you know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, Which is hilarious. But in a way that's true. So, you know, waiting tables, especially in New York, you can make really good money, you know, and I was making good money. Like, yep. and, and like you, unfortunately, sometimes I feel like, damn it. I'm always like a little bit jealous of people who are like, I was never good at anything but this. And I tried to wait tables, but I got fired on the first day. And I'm like, fuck, man, what's wrong with me that I was I so good at it? And I took it very seriously, but I was very much like, I'm here to make money. Like, get out of my way, <laughs> you know? And, um, yeah, and I killed it and I was making good money. And and so I started noticing like, oh, wow, I'm not like thinking about like trying to figure out like how can I make it? What do I need to do? What can I come up with to, you know, break out of this? And then I remember in the winter of 2013, I had been waiting tables for like six years, a little over six years. And I just remember being at the meatball shop where I was working at the time and thinking like, oh my, having this like vision of myself at like 60 years old with like a back brace and like a cigarette, like waiting tables and being like, can I get you anything else? And I was like, oh my God, I don't know how I'll ever get out of this. Like I just had no perspective of how I would get out. Mm -hmm. I was booking some stuff here and there, but nothing big enough. I, you know, it was just kind of like, I felt so hopeless. Um, And then things just, changed. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you had this these, this pivot of uh, things started to move in a different direction. Well, I started writing my own stuff. I started writing one, the my first one-person show called High Hitler about my upbringing and, and sort of like an autobiographical fish-out-of-water story. And I wrote that and I started doing it, performing it, and it, you know, changed my life. I watched some of it Last night, it was hilarious. I wish I had been able to see it live. Um, it's it's so funny as creatives, everybody is always like, write something, write something. So when somebody actually does write and make something valuable, 
uh, and go after it and completely do a one-woman show, which is just such a huge feat, uh, and put it up and produce it in New York City. And it showed to rave reviews. It's very rare, so it's it's really cool. Uh, how How did it, how did it change things? And was that the beginning of the comedy career too? Because there's there's like this other part that does some live comedy as well. I always I, I, I always did comedy and I had a sketch group that um, here in New York as well. Um, but I, I kind of always took the comedy for granted. I think that was another aspect of why I felt so lost and, and unhappy because I comedy is my thing, but I kind of put it to the side and tried to be this, you know, leading lady and and tried to, you know, be something that I'm kind of not, you know. Um, But yes, I I wrote the show in a workshop with this amazing guy called Matt Hoverman, who now lives in L.A., but he used to do these like solo show workshops. And um, and people would laugh, although I I wasn't trying to write punchlines. And um, and and how did it change everything? Well, first of all, it just it changed my perspective. I remember just feeling like, oh, my God, I can do this for the rest of my life and nobody can take it away from me. I don't need anybody to give me permission. I can like I've got this now, you know, even if I'm not rich and famous, whatever. For me, the thought of waiting tables for the rest of my life was just like this endless abyss mm-hmm. of like unhappiness. Um So the feeling, having the feeling of like, oh, my God, I can just make something, you know, and tour it and find opportunities and produce it. And I think, you know, that's where I also start to realize like, oh, I'm good at that, too. Like, I'm good at producing. And so that's how it changed things for me, like internally, I guess. And then Mm -hmm. sort of externally, I just, well, I got. Uh, I, I took it to the Edinburgh Fringe. I got uh, a, an agent in the UK. I uh, started meeting all these people. I did shows, um, uh, you know, basically at a West End theater, the Leicester Square Theater there. I, I got a tour in Germany. I didn't have to wait tables anymore. I got jobs and people were interested. Mm-hmm. And I was up and running in a way that I hadn't been before. And I wrote another show and, you know, did the Edinburgh Fringe again the year after. And then I did Red Dwarf. And then I I, I did that little part in Fantastic Beasts. Oh, and so, so and then, cool. yeah, things just uh, sort of took off in a, in a sense. It's the idea that almost that work begats work, right? So once you start to get in that mindset, that, yeah, this I can do this. I don't have to stare down that vacant abyss of nothingness of what am I going to, how am I going to survive? What am I going to do for the rest of my life? You found this thing, you took control of it. And then the other things start to flow in because it's almost as if, well, do you think that it was connected to uh, possibly like a mindset change that all of the other things started to sort of start to fit into your life? Maybe, probably. (laughs) I think that when once you have your first experience of making something from start to finish yourself, you realize like, okay, great. Nobody knows how this works and everybody's just taking a stab at it. And the most important thing is to do it um, and, and to also enjoy the process of doing it, which is something that a lot of people talk about and seems, you know, kind of like 
corny to say, but it is really about that. And so and that doesn't mean that once you do it once, then, you know, you never have the doubts again and you're set and that's it. Of course, you always come back to that feeling every time you start a new project. Every time. You know, I love uh, Steve Martin says, uh, this is a Steve Martin quote. He says, for the fact that I started with a blank piece of paper, I'm not doing too bad, you know? And it's so true. It's like <laughs> yeah, you, every so single true. time you start with a blank piece of paper and you just have to make it up as you go along. But yeah, so I think probably it was a change in mindset of like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do this. I remember asking Matt Hoverman, we're working on the show. I was like, do you think that anybody is going to want to see this? And I'll never forget this. He was like, I think you're going to have a long career doing this, Lucy. And I like started to cry because I just was like, what? Really? You know? Um, and so I I think it did. It changed my attitude. And it was this when voiceover work started to really come in uh, and act as another sort of uh, way to support yourself? The voiceover work here in the U.S. especially, I was always booking pretty consistently for German stuff because, Got you it. know, the competition is there's less competition, the like pool of native German speakers. So the first thing that I booked was with Paula Parker at John Marshall. Um, <laughs> and it was a German uh, language learning program. And, I, you know, I, I, I just I went on I would go on Craigslist back then and just type in German in the job section and see what would come up. Um, because I knew that it was something that would probably pay more than other jobs because there was a, a special skill needed for it. Right. Right. So I did that. I typed in German and this came up and it was an audition. You had to call in, leave a message on the, the voicemail, just speaking German. And Paula Parker called me and said, I have the job. I felt so excited and so happy and so rich. Um, and, uh, and it was like a three day job. And I think I made like a total of like $800 or something. And I just, I was so happy. And I was like, you can, yeah, retire. I was like, wow, this is so cool. You know, even though that, that work yeah. can be, you know, kind of tough. Cause you're just sitting there saying vocabulary words with no, um, intonation whatsoever. <laughs> so it can be kind of a mind fuck, but I loved it. I was so happy. I also had total imposter syndrome the whole time. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. They're going to know I don't know what I'm doing. And so right. then because that job was with one German woman who was like the German voice over queen in, in New York, Heike Bachmann, she recommended me to other people. And I started doing other language learning programs and like museum audio tours and stuff like that. And then I booked like one or two uh, German commercials that that uh, recorded here in New York, because that, that's something that happens mm -hmm. quite frequently. Um, huh. And then the audition for Mercy came along and they were looking for a native German speaker. And I booked it and I didn't know it was going to be as big of a deal as it became. And so that's when I started doing more voiceover. And that was in 2016. Wow. I booked Mercy. And then that was the first time I was able to go that was being sent out for English language right. stuff. Do you think that Mercy was sort of like a, a big change moment for you uh, personally and professionally? Mm, not at the time of booking it. No, I I thought it was just a, a, a couple of sessions and I was need like I was chin deep in my one person shows. I was doing my second one at that time. You know, I, I did another one right after that. 
the year after that, I was getting more and more into comedy uh, because of the solo shows. I got a really, really, really good comedy manager. So I was all about that. And the voiceover stuff was really fun and, and I was excited about it, but it wasn't something that I didn't realize that it was, you know, that big of a deal. I didn't know about Blizzard as a company. I didn't know. I didn't really wasn't into video games at all. I had heard of World of Warcraft, which is one of their games, but that was about it. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. But that was about it. And and I had I didn't know about Comic Cons. I didn't know that the gaming industry. I, I was very happy about the gig, um, but I just didn't yes. think that it was that big. You of had a deal. no idea. I, I think that that's what it is about this career too is you have to always give a thousand percent and you never know exactly what is the thing you know you may do this like really creative wonderful indie movie that you're like oh this is it this is this movie is the best movie <laughs> I've ever done and it doesn't go anywhere mm -hmm. and then you may do this other thing where you're like well that was fun that was a cool character playing this you know garbage can on you know as a voice and then like all of a sudden you know 10 years down the line you're like wow, that's that's a big thing. People really like this, you know, this character. So I I just think it's, I think it's so cool. Um, I, you said you just came back from Comic-Con. Are you headed anywhere else soon? So yeah, it's pretty cool. I've, I've done over 60 Comic-Cons now and I've been like pretty much all over the world. It's, it's really, 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 really amazing. And something I could never have dreamt uh, up in my wildest dreams. You know, that's why when I when I wish people anything, I always wish them all the things they wanted and all the things they never knew they wanted as well. You know, the, all the things you can't dream up um, in your in your wildest dreams. Yeah, it's been an amazing ride. I think I will end it there because that really is all that you can ask for. But I want to make sure, can you plug your podcast and your live comedy yes, show? Yes, my podcast is called Immigrant Jam Podcast. It's a podcast where I talk to the most amazing, interesting, funniest, coolest immigrants in town, uh, immigrants and first-generation immigrants. It's really fun. There's also a live show that I've been doing since 2017 called Immigrant Jam Comedy with immigrant and first-generation immigrants. Amazing. Lucy, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for sitting down with us today. And, uh, thank we'll you. See you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This podcast was created and produced by Heather Corrigan and Robin Lai. We would like to thank our guest, Lucy Pohl, for joining us today. This episode was directed by Robin Lai and recorded by Michael Bader. Content editing by Neve McAuliffe. Post-production by JMM Latam and mastered by Clint Rhodes. Special thanks to Boom Integrated and Adrian Glover. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and share it with all of your friends. Tune in next week as we bring you more women's stories that are totally badass and dramatic.